Hello and welcome to The Cove, the home of the Australian profession of arms. In this occasional podcast, I'm joined here with retired Major General Tim Cross, uh, formerly of the British Army. Tim commissioned in 1971 into the Royal Army Ordnance Corps and has commanded at every level, from platoon commander all the way through to commander of theatre troops, a divisional-sized organisation of 30,000 soldiers. He has seen operational service uh, throughout the world, including the Gulf, uh, the Balkans, Bosnia, Kosovo, and for a while was Jay Garner's right-hand man in Iraq after the invasion in 2003. Uh, we're going to be here talking about uh, the contemporary operating environment and how that has changed through history, what lessons we may be able to learn uh, as part of preemptive adaptation. Um, General Tim, thank you very much for joining me. Not at all. You're very welcome. It's good to see you. So um, you joined in 1971 where really the world was gripped by um, the threat of state-on-state -state, uh, war. That The Cold War um, was very much state-on-state -state, and even um, in some of the proxy wars were still state-on-state. Um, -state. We can see Vietnam, Borneo, communist um, insurgencies uh, uh, around the world. Um, how, what was the ethos of the army then um, and how, how did you understand war? from that junior officer up to um, sort of, you were about a colonel, weren't you, in, in 89? In 89, I was a lieutenant colonel uh, commanding my, my battalion in Germany. I, I go back with prior to that, actually. I became a cadet in 1964, so I started my army life, really. So I did 43 years, man and boy. And the cadets in 1964, of course, it was only 20 years after D-Day. So the, the thinking of the British Army was still very geared to World War II thinking, and obviously with the Cold War at that stage, the way we thought we would operate was very similar to World War II. So this was, as you say, massive state-on-state -state warfare. Um, and in those early days, my first tour in 1971 was to Germany to join the British Army of the Rhine as part of 1st British Corps. Three strong divisions in Germany with a 4th Division back in the UK. Um, and essentially, clearly it was a, a, a deterrent posture, but with a divided Germany, Alongside, alongside the or the inner German border separating East Germany from West Germany and a divided Berlin. The thinking essentially was that if, if the Warsaw Pact and we were facing three shock army in the northern part of the Northern Army Group, First British Corps was part of the Northern Army Group, commanded by a four-star British general with a Dutch Corps, Belgian Corps and a German Corps in the north and then uh, in the south was the Central Army Group, two, two big American Corps, two big German Corps we're talking now cores of strength of 40,000, 50,000, 60,000, American very strong cores, supported by Allied Tactical Air Forces, 2 ATAF and 4 ATAF uh, in the north and south. And essentially the plan was to put brigades as close to the border as possible, uh, to act as a covering force, so that if the Warsaw Pact had come across the border, they would have caused some attrition, but essentially they were there to try and uh, channel or, or see where the main thrusts were coming from, from the Warsaw Pact. And then we had our main defensive positions, which were not far back from the inner German border, where we would fight the main defensive battle. We expected that they would probably break through uh, at certain, st certain uh, places. And the really key decision for the Commander-in-Chief of the Northern Army Group, for example, was when do I launch the counter-strike to hit, hopefully hit the flank of anything that breaks through? and bring it all to a halt. And if that had failed, then part of the current posture was to go to nuclear weapons. Um, and we can come back to that in a second in terms of how they would be used. But ultimately, mutually assured destruction. MAD by acronym, and probably some people would think uh, MAD by design. 
But actually, in the context of the time, uh, you know, perfectly understandable. And, and in terms of understanding how we were going to do this, a recognition that conventional forces were probably not going to be sufficient to stop the Warsaw Pact. And in the, in the 60s and 70s, the thinking was, was part of the thinking, well, there were a lot of very good people thinking about nuclear deterrence in those days. I mean, you know, some very capable people in think tanks in the US and the UK and elsewhere. Um, so part of that thinking was, it is actually better not to have strong conventional forces, because then you have no option but to go nuclear. The Warsaw Pact Soviets and people understood that, therefore there was, you know, that would deter them from crossing the border. That changed in the 80s when people began to say, this is ridiculous, to have that sort of low tripwire where you have to go nuclear if you're going to stop anything. So the, the, uh, the years of Thatcher and Ronald Reagan and so forth put a lot more resources into conventional capability and, um, and also picked up on tactical nuclear weapons and various other you know, systems, which in the end, I think, genuinely did bankrupt the Russians if they, if it was mm. perhaps they tried to match that. So that state-on-state warfare very clearly uh, thought around in terms of World War II Large scale. I mean, we had something like 50,000 main battle tanks in Germany. The Warsaw Pact had about 60,000. We had about 5,000 combat aircraft. They had about 6,000 combat aircraft. Just about every town in northern Germany was had a British garrison of some shape or form, um, and uh, and quite a lot of the you know quite a lot of obviously the big cities, but most 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 of the towns. And wherever you went in Germany, very quickly you would come across a garrison of U.S., Canadians, Brits, and, and all the other countries involved. Um, from a logistic point of view, big depots holding large stocks of ammunition, a fuel pipeline that flowed throughout Western Europe so that a, a tank regiment, for example, could literally go into a wood where they knew there would be an offtake point from the Central European Pipeline System, the SEPs, open up and refuel their vehicles. So this, this came out of World War II with Pluto and the Normandy landings and so on. So you had this network of fuel pipelines all geared around, of course, falling back on our lines of communication, falling back on our stocks, which were, in many cases, deployed into pre-reconnaissance, -lo pre uh, pre-recid locations. So, in, in, in effect, a sort of 40-year design defence in depth. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, again, changed in the 80s, and particularly the Americans, where the Fulder Gap, a lot of people began to think about, we need to go east when they come west. So the Americans had this idea of going from the Fulda Gap deep into East Germany and then swinging north in order to cut the lines of communication and so on. The, the Soviets, and we haven't got time to go into it, but the Soviets had a very fixed way of fighting. So they had first and second echelon armour, which came up in, in, in patterns. The Egyptians used it, the systems in, in some of the Arab-Israeli wars. Um, so the thinking was very, very geared to World War II. And the problem became, and General Rupert Smith, who uh, in the end became de Sacker and wrote the book Utility of Force, yeah which is a, a pretty, should, should be in everybody's library, really, uh, every military officer's library and every, every soldier's library, really, although it's, you know, it's quite a deep uh, analysis. But um, General Rupert Smith was the uh, director of studies at the Staff College when I was an instructor at the Staff College as the Cold War came to an end. Um, when I was there initially, we didn't know the Cold War was coming to an end, and I was the SO1, the lieutenant colonel, looking at the, um, uh, the training and the, and the course structure and so on. And uh, I remember Rupert saying in 1987-88, the problem has become that the, that the practice of how we plan to fight in Germany has become our principles of war. We have lost sight of the real principles of war. 
and turn that into our practice. So I, I talk about the three P's, mm-hmm. principles, practice, and procedures. And basically what Rupert was saying was the procedures and the practice of how we operate in Germany and plan to fight in Germany had become our principles of war. And we'd lost sight of the, of the genuine principles. Uh, and he was quite rightly, in my view, quite concerned about that. Principles of war, we have 10 principles of war, and they, they're enduring over time. Generally speaking, they last for a long period of time. You can test and adjust them a little bit, but you know the, the classic 10 principles of war are, are, are there and, and, uh, and endure. Procedures change to some degree, but again, in relative terms, they're, they're quite enduring. But how you apply the principles and use those procedures in practice should change in every theatre of operations uh, is different to, to, to the, each other. Yeah. And within that theatre of operations, changes over time. So moving on, what was right for uh, Northern Ireland, for example, or Malaya, or fighting the, the Mau Mau or the Oka campaigns and so forth, the principles of counterinsurgency operations endured, but how you applied them depended on the culture and the circumstances and so on. And what was right in Iraq in 2004, for example, not necessarily right for Iraq in 2006 or eight. Mm. It was right in Afghanistan over that period of time. And what Rupert put his finger on was, intellectually, in terms of our understanding of warfare, the vast majority of the British Army were focused on this general deployment plan, GDP. That's how they thought war would be fought. And, um, and our whole career structures was built around that. You know, if you're a good battalion commander, regimental commander in Germany, you went on to become a brigade commander, a divisional commander, and so forth. But all inside that, that paradigm, that box of thinking, and, and we needed to be shaken out of it. And that's what Rupert started to do as the Cold War came to an end, ironically. And it, was, it couldn't have been more important in some respects because I left that Staff College appointment. I can tell you the exact date. It was the 10th of September, 1980, uh, 1990. And I went off to Germany to take over command of my battalion. Rupert subsequently came out to take over command of 1st Armoured Division, which my battalion was part of. And that, of course, is just as Iraq invaded Kuwait. So we then found ourselves not falling back on lines of communication inside West Germany with good infrastructure and the, such, the pipeline system and all the stocks and all the rest of it. We now had to deploy this brigade, initially 7 Armoured Brigade, as part of Desert Shield to northern Saudi Arabia to act as a defensive shield to make sure the Iraqis couldn't take over the northern oil fields. But then put another brigade and a strong artillery brigade, engineer brigade, logistic brigades, etc. to take part in Desert Storm yeah. which is now offensive operations in a desert 2,000 miles away from my home base. And, you know, that just intellectually, that was, that was very, very different, how we were going to do that and so on. I mean, there were certain, the princi- I stress the principles were the same, and much of, the, much of the, 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 you know, the way we did our business in some respects was the same, but the whole understanding of that uh, was very different. And how did you, if we can um, have a look at the comparison then, if we look at... Uh, 1990, 1991, it, it was still a fairly conventional fight against a conventional force. It was. Um, so whilst, um, as you said, a lot of the logistic aspects were a real challenge to get your head around, I suppose for the, uh, the armoured corps and the, the infantry and the artillery, they were still playing the same playbook, the same Well, they, they were to a degree, but, but you know, without being, um, over, being unfair in inverted commas yeah. to the way we were going to fight in Germany... I mentioned the numbers of main battle yeah. tanks, etc. This was still very largely an attritional fight. Yeah. You know, we, we, we recognised that we would have to 
to stop the Warsaw Pact was going to take a lot of firepower and it was about a 30-day war and we were going to start running out of stocks. It was about could we stop the armoured the armour and shoot down enough aeroplanes and bring this whole thing to a halt before going nuclear, if you like. So it was still, in, in many ways, an attritional fight. What we were bringing in in, in, in the first Gulf War, uh, particularly through, through American thinking, but, but to be fair, through the 1980s in particular, towards the end of the Cold War, was this whole new way of thinking about manoeuvre warfare, about outthinking as well as outfighting your enemy. About, um, so, for example, in, in terms of fighting power, Iraq had shed loads of stuff. So the you know, physical component, bags of stuff. Yeah. Uh, in terms of conceptual component, intellectual component, understanding how to fight, the, Iran the Iraqis had just fought a long war with Iran in the 1980s, about eight years. They had basically fought World War I tactics, advancing in long lines across the desert and getting mown down in large numbers. And that was how they intended to fight and defend themselves in, in terms of Kuwait. In terms of the moral component, they, they were not, you know, they did not have a strong moral component. So the uh, US-led coalition, of which we put an armoured division in of about 35,000 strong, I mean, it was a very powerful armoured division. Um, initially, we were going to be part of the, uh, the Marine Expeditionary Force fighting our way into Kuwait with 7 Armoured Brigade. But then when we brought the whole division in, we, we went under command 7 US Corps and became part of the flank that went round the outside of Kuwait whilst the Marines went in, into Kuwait. But essentially, we outthought as well as outfought the Iraqis, and the whole thing was over in a hundred hours. Mm. And I remember leaning on a Land Rover on the road from Kuwait City to Basra, listening to the World Service to to try and find out were we going to go on to Basra and maybe even get rid of Saddam Hussein at the time. And of course, the, the decision was taken not to do that. And as one of my mantras in life is, all choices carry consequences. There were various consequences that flowed from that decision. But my point in, in terms of your, your question is that, yes, of course, in terms of you know, individual tank regiments and individual infantry battalions fighting some fight, quite hard battles at certain stages, nonetheless, it was a part of a, a much different way of thinking about how we were going to do this. Um, and I think it was, you know, it was a pretty... I mean, the Americans were very impressive, clearly. Mm. And they'd done a lot of good doctrinal thinking on this. So that... Uh, <laughs> the irony, of course, was that when the Cold War came to an end, we'd had quite a few cuts in defence, the, the options for change process and so forth. Um, and I'm afraid our politicians have a rather habit of cutting defence, thinking you know, all wars have come to an end. The peace dividend. The peace dividend, it was called at the time. Um, but it was, a, it was a different way of thinking. And um, it took us to that, to that end of that period, at which stage, partly going back earlier on to the end of the Cold War, many people, in defence as well as elsewhere, sort of thinking, well, what do we do now? Warsaw Pact's gone, collapsed, communism has collapsed, and that was the time that people like Huntingdon and, and others were talking about the end of history and the, and the clash of civilizations and all this sort of stuff in a completely different way, you know, yeah. anal analysing things. So 1991, that all comes to an end. Then we hit the 1990s, which of course is, people obviously talk about the Balkans, but we shouldn't forget Rwanda. Mm. Rwanda was a, dis for me, Rwanda was a very decisive moment. Um, just going back slightly, of course, in that period of the 70s and 80s, Northern Ireland had been running. I did bomb disposal work in Northern Ireland as an ammunition technical officer. And the Falklands campaign had happened. And the Falklands campaign in Northern Ireland were successful in many ways, particularly the Falklands, I have to say. But again, in terms of our thinking of how we operated in Northern Ireland, particularly, we got a lot of things wrong in Northern Ireland over, over quite a long period of time before we began to think through 
um, you know, it should be criminality, it should be civil-led, you know, when the military led the campaign in the early 70s and so on. Not because people weren't brave, capable soldiers, but because the, the conceptual thinking was not right. The framework. The framework was yeah. wrong. So that had been going on, obviously, and, and just as a sort of comment on Northern Ireland, Northern Ireland started when I was at Sandhurst in 1970, and we, we gave it a name, and as you know, the great thing about calling something an operation is you get a medal. So Northern Ireland became Operation Banner. The first medals were handed out in 1970. It finished the year I left the British Army in 2007, 37 years later. These in campaigns, terrorist counterinsurgency campaigns, go on a long time, which, put from a political point of view, in terms of endurance, which Napoleon once said is more important than courage, endurance in Iraq and Afghanistan all those years later, we just lost sight of the fact that these things, you don't solve these problems quickly. Anyway, so going back to the 1990s, Rwanda, 800,000 people massacred, not using modern weapons, uh, but by machete and, and so on. Kofi Annan was the head of the United Nations DPKO, Department of Peacekeeping Operations, deeply scarred by Rwanda and all of, you know, the, the lack of capability, the lack of the ability of the UN to respond and so on. Tony Blair, interestingly, deeply scarred by it. The Balkans, of course, breaks out in about 92, first, first two or three Balkan wars. Peacekeeping operations then put, are put into play. UN provides some peacekeeping capability. And we, we sent a, a battalion, Cheshire's, early on and others, with support to take part in those UN peacekeeping operations. So UN peacekeeping, if you imagine in the context of this conversation, if you imagine a spectrum, yeah. left-hand side is complete peace, right-hand side is nuclear exchange, third world war. Yeah. In between on that spectrum is a whole raft of different war fighting and, and um, operations. Out of interest, in recorded history, there's only been about 260 years of worldwide peace, over 6,000 years. Um, you know, mankind doesn't change that much. So every time somebody said war's coming to an end and we're all jolly nice to each other, is talking through their hat, to put it politely. Um, but at the other end of that spectrum, we had fought, obviously, World War II. The Iraq War and the, and the potential for the Warsaw Pact, Cold War, was at that end of the spectrum. Down the bottom end of the spectrum was this peacekeeping operation. Now, peacekeeping had been going on quite a long time since the end of World War II um, in various places, particularly the Middle East, after the 48, 56, 67 wars and so forth. Um, and we, the UK, would, would, took part in the peacekeeping in Cyprus, which was unusual, because usually the protagonists in the, in the Cold War did not provide capability for peacekeeping. It was mostly the non-aligned, Austria, Ireland, the Nordic countries and so on. But because we had the two sovereign bases and we had a large logistic capability, um, we, provided, uh, and a, we provided a battalion of various other things to UN peacekeeping. And I served in Nicosia in, 70, in 81, as part of a, a year's tour in, in, in UN peacekeeping. And interestingly, that operation, that peacekeeping operation, continues to this day, um, soon to be taken over by an Australian Major General. Right, well, there you go. Uh, yeah, indeed. And that, of course, is, I mean, peacekeeping had been going on in Cyprus since the 60s, after the 74 invasion. It was when the Green Line was established. Um, so there we go, 74, and now here we are in, in 2018, 2019 soon. So again, the, the duration of these yep. things. Now, peacekeeping was interesting because the force that was deployed was not entitled to use force. It was allowed to defend itself, but it was not allowed to use force. 
it reported to the UN Department of Peacekeeping Operations every, all the time. Any incident was reported every day. Reports went back to New York. Um, the protagonists, as I say, were mostly non-aligned. And um, the, the UN Security Council had to renew every one of these mandates every six months or so. And, and of course, people wore blueberries. But they were, they were only there because the protagonists had agreed that we want somebody to stand in the middle and help us keep this peace. But if they started having a crack at each other, the peacekeepers could not intervene, if you like. So come 1990s, the Balkans kicks off. We put, we the, the world, in inverted commas, put peacekeepers into the... Into the but there was no peace to keep. Mm. And, and the world stood by and watched as ethnic cleansing began to unfurl. Not new in one sense, but we, we now knew it was happening, if you, if you see what I mean, through the media and through other, you know, through our uh, communications and so on. And I, I think that's probably an important point for people listening. Um, the spectrum of conflict often looks like a triangle, very thin at one end and, 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 and very large at the other. But really that's the spectrum of nation-state involvement doesn't necessarily reflect the level of violence at that point in conflict. Quite. So while peacekeeping is often seen as being low on the spectrum of conflict, it can be still be incredibly violent. You mentioned Rwanda, 800,000. Yeah, I mean, Bosnia, I remember growing up watching it, and it was purely horrific. The levels of violence were astronomical. They were. And, and of course, if you go back World War One, World War Two, generally speaking, the casualties in war, as we saw it, was you know, 100 soldiers for every civilian being killed. That reverses itself in, in the Balkans and places like Rwanda, where the vast majority of people being killed are civilians through uh, genocide, ethnic cleansing and so on. So the peacekeepers don't have a peace to keep. And eventually um, the Dayton Accord is signed at, at Dayton. And we, we move to the implementation force, the NATO implementation force, where everybody takes off their blue beret and sticks on their national beret and it becomes a peace, some people would call it a peace support operation, but very clearly it is a peace enforcement operation. General Mike Jackson, who I worked with a lot over the years and subsequently became uh, Chief of General Staff of the UK Army, was commanding three divisions at the time, and he went in uh, commanding the, um, the I-4 deployment from a British point of view. There were three areas of responsibility, US, UK and France. And, um, and I remember we, we had got quite a strong capability in under UN wearing blueberries and so on uh, those all came off literally overnight as they became part of the I-4 General Mike and, and I went over in that in that initial deployment with the headquarters over a short period of time I remember him gathering the commanders of the Serb, Croat and Muslim, Muslim uh, commanders and saying to them you know we are here to enforce this peace and I remember the Serb commander saying you know with what because they were very sweepingly dismissive of the UN capability and Mike laid on a, a firepower demonstration with main battle tanks and artillery and so forth and said, with that... He, well, I think I might be exaggerating slightly, but he, he got on a hilltop, and in typical British standard, he put out some old wooden tables, covered them with white tablecloths, laid out tea and cups of tea and cake and so forth, got these commanders around, had this conversation, laid on the firepower demonstration in front of them, and then turned to the commanders and said, that's what we'll hit you with if you cause any trouble. Goodbye, gentlemen, and you know, disappeared. It was quite an amusing uh, period. But it made the point that we were now enforcing a peace. Your governments have signed up to this. If you, if you kick off, we will do something about it. So I-4 and then Sustainment Force, S-4, works pretty well, actually, uh, and things are sort of quietening down. But nonetheless, Srebrenica and other things happen. 
Um, Rupert Smith by this time has come in as commander of Sarajevo and orders the, the bombing of the Serb artillery positions around Sarajevo and so forth. So, that, you know, it's, it's certainly not um, perfect by any manner of means. But things are, are settling down reasonably well. A, a really interesting time then is when Blair goes to Chicago and gives his famous speech in Chicago about essentially saying, we cannot stand by and watch as people are massacred, genocide and, and ethnic cleansing goes on. So this is the beginning of the sort of responsibility to, to protect, protect doctrine. Exactly. Yeah. And I, you know, I know Blair is a toxic brand nowadays. And uh, as, as I often say in these conversations, I never voted for him. Uh, but I do know him quite well for various reasons. And I'll come back to that in a minute. But, but Blair gives his speech in Chicago. And in simple terms, and this, this is probably oversimplifying it, but in my language, the Treaty of Westphalia... Uh, which brings, brings to an end the Hundred Years' War in Europe, establishes what we would understand as a sovereign state system over time. And if you imagine that to be a snooker table with billiard balls on the snooker table, the sovereign states, which are these billiard balls, bounce off each other as you, as you hit them with a, with a snooker cue. And essentially, what the Treaty of Westphalia says is, you're a sovereign state and I'm a sovereign state. What you do in your state is your business, not mine. What I do in my state is my business, not yours. We cannot go on slaughtering each other because we don't agree with your politics or whatever. And obviously in, the, in oh. Europe in those days it was religion and all these other things. The, the 150 different brands of Protestantism. Exactly, were, yeah. exactly, exactly. What, what Blair puts on the table is what uh, an academic called Henry Shue talks about and others as conditional sovereignty. And conditional sovereignty says what you do in your state is your business until you start doing really nasty stuff. And that is a fundamental change. We went to war with Germany in 1914, not because we didn't like the Germans, but because they invaded Belgium. We went in 1939, not because of what they were doing to the Jews in the 30s, and not because of anything else, because they invaded Poland. They had broken that sovereign state billiard ball uh, system, if you like. What Blair was now saying, joined in with others, was that we have to do something when we're watching as a world, as people are ethnically cleansed, cleansed and genocide goes on. And we therefore have this idea of conditional sovereignty, and as you say, which develops over time to responsibility to protect. Now, the first time this comes into being is Kosovo. And Kosovo breaks in 1999. It's a long story, but a peace conference goes on at a place called Rambouille. People think that rather like Dayton, there'll be some sort of agreement. UK decides to deploy two brigades. I'm commanding one of those brigades. We go in through Greece, through Thessaloniki, we go up to Macedonia, and we're ready to go into Kosovo to probably do some sort of peace enforcement, peace support operation. So still operating down the sort of bottom end of the warfighting spectrum, if you like. Rambouille fails, Milosevic refuses to give in, so we, NATO, start bombing Serbia. And we, in theatre, begin to plan to fight our way into Kosovo. So we're now at the other end of the spectrum, not in the... Um, heavy war fighting end but in a limited war if you like type, type end of the spectrum not quite Vietnam but you know up that towards that end Having, how are we going to fight our way into Kosovo and force Milosevic to give up whilst that is going on there is a massive movement of people inside Kosovo IDPs in huge numbers quite a lot going across the border into northern Albania and a big build up on the Macedonian border of IDPs and uh, it's a long story I won't go into, but in the end, 
Uh, I was asked by the UNHCR representative, the United Nations High Commission for Refugees, a guy called Joe Hedenar, to help deal with this problem because there were virtually no aid, well, there were no aid agencies in, in theatre at all at that time. And the Macedonian foreign minister rang me and said, if we let these people in, can you guarantee that you will stop them yeah. uh, going into Skopje and various other places? To be fair, they were desperately worried about a civil war in Macedonia because they'd watched the whole of the Balkans blowing up in the previous decade. And um, I said, yeah, don't worry about it. I haven't got a clue how we're going to do it. But anyway, said yes. And we ended up by building and running refugee camps. So we were now down the bottom end of this spectrum, below peacekeeping, really, into humanitarian operations. At the same time as trying to plan our way to fight our way into Kosovo at the other end of the spectrum. And we built and ran refugee camps in Macedonia and actually in Albania as well. And finally, of course, um, Milosevic gives in and we move into Kosovo. The important issue for me for that, from that operation is that Blair's doctrine, if you like, a bit over the top, but nonetheless, Blair's doctrine, if you like, of thinking about conditional sovereignty is put into play and succeeds. Kosovo is a success. It never has a United Nations Security Council resolution. So it's not, in many people's eyes, it is not legal in an international sense. But most people believed it was legitimate and it was certainly successful. And it was Blair that got Clinton involved and pulled the Americans in and so on. So you have this decade where we've moved away from interstate warfare. We've moved into this period of, of um, uh, humanitarian operations and, uh, and low-level a UN peace enforcement operation, relatively low-level peace enforcement operations. And, and seen as largely as sort of, we'd learnt the hard way, the, the West had learnt the hard way, Kosovo was successful, that was replicated in Sierra Leone, it looked as if the doctrine was working. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And then the world has turned on its head well, on 9-11. Exactly, exactly that. But I would say, and without having a crack at the Australians in particular, but having lived in Australia myself in the 50s, I should add, I'm very pro-Australian, um, but nonetheless... A number of countries in that period had started to reinvent themselves away from war fighting to humanitarian peacekeeping, peace support. Um, people, I mean, serious articles being written saying, what are militaries for today? They're, not, they're about the lower end of the spectrum. So Australia, Canada, many other nations, Dutch, Belgians and so forth, got out of the war fighting business and repositioned themselves down this end of the spectrum. I have to say much to the annoyance of many in the humanitarian community. And I remember going to conferences in The Hague and taking part in, in quite a lot of uh, you know, conferences and talks and so forth in that early period after Kosovo when the humanitarian world was saying, you know, get out of our space, basically. You know, you, you guys are a bunch of thugs and we don't want <laughs> you in this space. And I think with some justification. I mean, Joe Hagenar hated asking me... Um, my brigade happened to have the capabilities that were you know, key to enabling us to do this. I had an engineer regiment and a medical field hospitals and, and a logistic regiments and all sorts of stuff. And we did it pretty well. And I think in one sense, the humanitarian community were pretty worried about the fact that we were pretty good at this. Mm. Uh, but we weren't that good. And we had, there was an awful lot of stuff we didn't. You know, we wouldn't have done anywhere nearly as well as the UN and the aid agencies. But my point is that many people began to reposition themselves. My, I feel very strongly about this. At the end of the day, the British Army is here to deliver fighting power. That means duffing up the Queen's enemies anywhere in the world where we're called upon to do so. That means we must be capable of high-intensity war fighting. And one of the great cries in those early days, back in, actually back in the 70s and 80s to be fair, was that if you hold yourself capable of war fighting, you can step down into these other areas that I've talked about. 
You can't do it the other way around after a period of time. And uh, it was interesting looking at Australia, how that's changed back into more money going into defence and, and a recognition that you need to be at that, you know, that high intensity end. So the 1990s comes in, as you say, September the 11th happens. September the 11th is interesting for all sorts of reasons. I understood intellectually that it was important. I only understood it emotionally when I went to live in Washington in 2002. And in terms of you know, understanding warfare, if you like, in the conceptual component, we need to be clear. America thought it was at war. And the global war on terror was a deliberate act by Bush and others um, about how we deal with these people. And it was terrorism they were talking about. It wasn't about counterinsurgency and it wasn't about high-intensity war fighting. So it was, it was somewhere you know, below counterinsurgency on the spectrum. But it was about taking the fight back. We can't sit here and let these people come at us. Obviously, it was the first time the US had been attacked since Pearl Harbor and all that sort of stuff. So September the 11th happens. The global war on terror is declared. Initial operations in Afghanistan go well and are fought largely by special forces. No heavy conventional firepower is put into, into Afghanistan. And it's pretty successful. And Rumsfeld is the driver for that. That goes well. 2002, then the US start thinking about how do we deal with these brutal dictatorships in the Middle East who are supporting terrorism and enabling these terrorists to attack us? So what are we going to do about it? And by the summer of 2002, pretty clear that going back to my point about all choices carrying consequences, Saddam Hussein, still there, still breaking all the UN resolutions that were being passed in the intermediate period. Northern fly zone had been established. Southern fly zone had been established. He'd used chemical weapons against the Kurds. He'd drained the marshes. He'd ethnically cleansed, basically, you know, everybody in the South and so on. And, and in America in particular, but elsewhere, to be fair as well, people beginning to say, enough. Conditional sovereignty, this has gone on enough. We've got to do something about this. In my view, it wasn't all about weapons of mass destruction. I know they became the sort of focal... focal the core celeb. The core celeb, exactly, of the media in particular. But for America, it wasn't about WMD. It was about dealing with this root of, of terrorism. So I was stood up as the Joint Force Logistic Component Commander for potential operations in Iraq in 2002. Um, and with the other component commanders, Navy, Air, Land and Special Forces, under Brian Burridge, who was a three-star airman, who was our joint commander. We went off to CENTCOM various times, took part in the planning, um, as the only overseas nation involved other than the Aussies. And the Aussies had a, had a team there as well, uh, with the New Zealanders to, on the Special Forces side. So we saw all the military planning coming together for what was going to be a conventional fight, a move into Iraq, and almost a you know, 1990, 1991-type style. Lots of interesting issues. Would they use chemical weapons? You know, the answer was probably. Would they fight Baghdad and turn it into a sort of Stalingrad uh, type, type battle of attrition and so on? But the military planning was pretty powerful and pretty good. I mean, you know, the American military uh, and the senior American military are a pretty impressive bunch of guys. I've worked with them a lot over the years. What they do, were not into was any post-war thinking, any phase four planning. So this was intellectually understanding we're going to conventional fight, but failing to understand that in the 21st century, you don't get unconditional surrender or, you know, the world has changed in that sense. Remembering that over a thousand people were planning the reconstruction prior to D-Day in, in 1944, 40, 43, 44 time. 
Nobody was thinking about post-war planning for Iraq in the sort of late 2002 era. There was one American brigadier who I remember being introduced at CENTCOM, an engineer, and he was introduced as a guy who was beginning to think about phase four. Nobody wanted to talk to him. You know, he was not a war fighter, um, which was a, a sad reflection, really, on a lack of understanding about what, you know, what this would entail. We were going to go north, first British First Armoured Division, with an American 4ID, 4 Infantry Division, through Eastern Mediterranean, through Turkey, a, a long line of communication to a place called Salopi, and then come in through the north to the Kurdish region and the, oil, the northern oil fields. Logistically, it was going to be a nightmare. And I was the Joint Force Logistic Component Commander. I had two logistic brigades, all the forward mounting base in Cyprus, and a raft of other stuff. But competing with the ID to go down a single line of communication, trying to get everybody ready to go in, was, would have been a nightmare. Luckily, from my point of view, we, the UK, decided the Turks would never let us in anyway. And so we decided to go south and put our troops in through Kuwait. Logistically, much easier. So I was stood down. And... Um, I was then rung up by Mike Jackson, who was by now the Chief of General Staff, and told to go to the States and join Jay Garner in what was then called the Office of Post-War Planning. Inside the Pentagon, small team of people, Jay was a retired three-star American general. He had commanded the operation in northern Iraq in the Kurdish mountains post-91, and we had put three commander brigade under his command, and they, they dealt with the northern refugee problem post-91. Um, he'd subsequently retired, three-star. Rumsfeld brought him back in, and I went over in January to join this team. Very small team, and that's when I began to realise the emotional drive for this whole campaign. And the UK, here in the UK, nobody ever thought we were at war, really, other than the military. Very few politicians saw it in that, in that sense. Mm. Um, and... You know, subsequently in Afghanistan, I think the same was true. The Americans put you know huge effort into this, and it wasn't just a small neoconservative clique. I mean, this was a broadly held view. Although the Beltway Bandits and the internecine warfare between State Department and DoD and so forth was very evident, and I won't bore you with the whole story. But the bottom line is, Garner goes to Kuwait, and I, I then go with him, and um, we then move into Baghdad when the statue comes down. The military fight goes very well. Uh, the UN uh, had predicted hu huge humanitarian crisis, you know, massive reconstruction crisis and so forth. That never materialised. But of course the big mistake is Rumsfeld's paradigm. And Rumsfeld's paradigm is we have used special forces in Afghanistan. It's gone really well. We do not need huge numbers of people to secure Iraq. Remembering that... Um, the, the previous doctrine under the US uh, Joint Chief of Staff, who fought in Vietnam, the first black Joint Chief of Staff, Colin Powell, the, the, yeah. the Powell Doctrine. The Powell Doctrine was overwhelming combat power, get in, win, and get out. And that's why the first Cold War had gone so well in simple terms. And there was a four-star American general called Sinseki who basically stood up against Rumsfeld and said, we are going to need 350,000 people to hold, hold Iraq. And he got sacked for his trouble. Rumsfeld was quite clear, 150,000 US, about 50,000 Brits. Within six months, we will draw down to 50,000 US, 10,000 Brits. Um, and once we got rid of Sudan, the plan was we do not need a plan for post-war Iraq. And I do not exaggerate when I say that. 
Therefore, we get rid of Saddam, the Iraqi people will stand up, give a rousing round of applause, and we will move on, probably to Iran, maybe to Syria and to other places. I had lunch with Rumsfeld at one point, and um, he asked me you know, what I thought about all of this. I was the only Brit or the only non-American around this table with a number of senior American military. And I said to him, you know, Mr. Secretary, in the 1970s, the British Army had 27,000 British soldiers in Northern Ireland trying to hold the line, provide the secure environment. Tiny province. In Kosovo, we had 60,000 NATO troops. You're talking about holding Iraq with, with about 50,000 within six months. You may be right, but what's plan B? I then said, you're going to have to internationalise this and you're going to have to work with the UN and, and, and uh, human, uh, humanitarian aid agencies because of the potential yeah. post-war stuff. He did not want to hear. I was completely shut out of conversation. He had his paradigm and that's, if you spoke against it, you just weren't, you know, weren't on the game. And the irony, I suppose, is if we go back to the beginning of your story, deploying out to the British Army on the Rhine, 60 years after uh, defeating um, Germany in the Second World War, there was still a core yeah. of Allied troops right. in, in Germany. Yeah, well, I was still... I mean, 1989, there were four, four or five corps. Mm. I know, more than that, actually, eight corps. So, yeah, you're right. I mean, you know, and, it, and it's... And it goes back to your, you know, your, your issue here of conceptual understanding of what warfare looks like. And the focus was on war fighting destroying Saddam, getting rid of Saddam and his combat power, not about understanding from the Balkans, from Kosovo, from Northern Ireland, from these other areas, that there was more to it than this. And therefore, when the war came to an end, I mean, and I went into Baghdad with, with Jay, and I don't want to be unfair to the US troops, they'd, they'd prepared long and hard for this, and it had been a hard fight. I mean, we tend to forget, you know, it was not an easy fight for these guys. A bloody hot, uh, you know, NBC, wearing NBC kit and all the rest of it. They were ready to go home. Without being particularly unfair, they'd watched 1991, where people had gone home, ticker tape parade, lots of medals, people wrote lots of books and became famous, Schwarzkopf and all the rest of them. So, you know, the senior American military just thought, we're going home. And that's what exactly the atmosphere was. There, was, there were, you know, troops around Baghdad, but they weren't doing anything. Jay's team started to do what we went in there to do, find the ministries, stand up the ministries. There was no humanitarian crisis, done some initial reconstruction. The infrastructure of Iraq was held together by chicken wire and chewing gum because of 10, 12 years of sanctions. Mm. So, you know, you were not going to get the power up and running quickly. But the Jay's point was, OK, we need to now put in the resources that will enable the Iraqi people to stand up and get up this moving and so on. Then, of course... I mean, it's not quite as sequential as this because some trouble was breaking out already. The Saddam people who, you know... Because Saddam hadn't been captured at that point. Yeah. So there were some people going around causing trouble who still supported Saddam. But essentially, Bremer comes in, makes these three key decisions. And people tend to get his three, not just two. He disbanded the Iraqi military. He took the top off the ministries of any Ba'athists down to a level about level four. And he stopped the political process that Jay had began to put in place because Jay had said to the Iraqi politicians, you're going to get sovereignty by the summer of 2003. You better think about how you're going to do that, because we're not staying, basically. Yeah. By sending, and Jay had wanted to use the Iraqi military to help clear up the place and provide some security, in the same way that we'd used all sorts of people in previous campaigns. And although the numbers one had basically all gone, and a lot of the numbers two had gone or been killed, the numbers three and four in these ministries 
who were Baathists, had nonetheless stayed, and we'd found quite a lot of them. We'd have found quite a lot of people who worked in these ministries. When I talk about ministry, I'm talking about ministry of education, agriculture, yep. defence, foreign affairs. You know, like going into into Sydney uh, or in Whitehall in London, yeah. where you can see all these ministries. By by sending by disbanding the Iraqi military, with no pay, no pension, sending home all these people. Well, what would you or I have done when we've got to feed our family and all the rest of it? You pick up the Kalashnikovs and start causing bloody trouble. That's what you start doing. You de- you take the top off these ministries under the Baathist regime. If you were a Baath, if you weren't a Baathist, you wouldn't you be there anyway. You wouldn't be there anyway. And if you weren't a Baathist or you weren't senior, you did not put your head above the parapet. So you took away all the command and control from right across these ministries. And I do not exaggerate when I say two-star American generals were in tears over this decision. And that third piece about stopping the political process meant that you irritated, to put it politely, a lot of you know, uh, Iraqi politicians. Now, I don't want to oversimplify this. It would yeah. not have been easy. And who the hell were these politicians anyway? You know, did you want to use the exiled who'd gone to London, the London Seven, Hakim and all the rest of it? Or did you want to use the people who'd stayed? It would have been difficult. But in making those decisions, then the, the, you know, the, the museums were looted, terrorists began to emerge. Rumsfeld, refusing to accept the reality of what was going on, talked about, well, this is just natural exuberance, having got rid of Saddam and so forth. Eventually, so for example, let's give you an example, land component commander, US land component commander, um, never saw themselves under authority of Jay Agana, who was, in my line, was the civil authority, if you like, should have been. Um, but when I went to briefings with them in that period of March, April, you know, how many attacks were there last night? You know, what's going on? We don't know. They weren't even recording the incidents. They didn't want to know. They weren't dealing with them. They just wanted to go home. And um, finally, Rumsfeld begins to realise, and others, Cheney and so forth, begin to realise, basically they hang Jay out to dry. Very, very unfairly, in my view. Now, a bit of Swedish Stockholm syndrome, yeah. you know, with me working with Jay. But he's a very, very capable operator. My criticism of Jay was he never saw himself other than a retired three-star general. So when he spoke to serving four-star generals and three-star generals, he was he thought himself as being under their authority. Rather than the civil authority Correct. which the military Absolutely. should answer to. And to be fair to Bremer, when Bremer arrived, the first thing he did was to say to the American military, you will get land component, you'll get your headquarters into my location, you are under my authority, I am running this place. And he's absolutely right. Basically, he becomes the viceroy of Iraq, mm. you know, in, in, in historical terms. But, of course, it all goes pear-shaped. And then we end up with this terrorist campaign, which people don't recognise quickly enough is actually a counterinsurgency campaign with all the various players. And fundamental to that, right from the very beginning, is a lack of understanding, going right back to what we were talking about earlier on, principles, procedures and practice, not understanding the culture of Iraq, the history of Iraq, the, the feelings of Iraq. So Iraq's a state that we've created after World War I. We, the Brits, went into the south and were actually welcomed pretty well. The Kurds welcomed us as liberated. It was like liberating Paris. Went up to the Kurdish region, there was parades and all sorts of stuff going on. But fundamentally, of course, Iraq was divided, deeply divided, between Sunni, Shia, Kurd and, and other minorities. And um, the, the south, in the south, they remembered the Mesopotamian campaign. You know, They said, it's great to see you, we're delighted you got rid of Sudan, but don't bloody well stay for very long, otherwise you're going to be in trouble. Yeah. And... And in, in the U.S. sense, and I have to say in Whitehall, the Foreign Office and Diffin and other places, they, I, and I heard senior people in these departments saying, religion is irrelevant. 
You know, we're not interested. London is going to be a secular capital, you know, secular atheist capital. Religion is unimportant. I mean, it's had play, this plays in all sorts of other areas, I might add, too. Yeah. But in terms of Iraq, it just showed a complete illiteracy of the culture. And therefore, in that, as that campaign counterinsurgency began to break out, people didn't know how to deal with it. There are a couple of shining lights in this. Dave Petraeus is one who's commanding 101st Airborne Division at the time. He goes back and completely reinvents American doctrine, takes, you know, trade off and so forth, and they begin to train their people back. And I have to say I have huge respect for the way within two or three years they changed their whole way of thinking. So, for example, 4ID, who were going to go in the north with us, were left bobbing around the Mediterranean for ages. They finally got in and took over some of Petraeus's on AOR. They applied very, very poor tactics. I mean, they just caused more bloody trouble than they, than they solved. Rather like we in Northern Ireland had, not, had got it wrong in the early days with some of the rural mob battalions who came in. Yeah. You know, the tradition back in Northern Ireland in the 70s was if you were a CO going into an AOR, six, four, four month tour with no break in between. Basically, you arrived, first report, this place is a terrible, it's awful. You know, your last report, I've sorted it out, it's brilliant, please promote me and give me an OBE. And that happened every four months as you know, new regiments came in. I mean, I exaggerate slightly for effect. There were some very good ones, but essentially. So 4ID come in, and their idea is we've got, to in, you know, we've got to put down this thing. And in terms of counterinsurgency understanding, understanding and conceptual thinking and so forth, completely got it wrong. Petraeus comes back later on, of course, as a three-star, having rewritten this doctrine. And the whole tenor of the place changes, a recognition this is counterinsurgency, it is going to take a long time, uh, AKK, you know, Northern Ireland and so forth, um, but the whole atmosphere begins to change. Not helped, of course, in 2006 when that's beginning to happen, when the UK decide we're going to go into Helmand Province, we're coming out of Iraq just as America was reinforcing all of Rumsfeld's thinking about relatively small numbers and so forth, now taken over by reality. You do not hold secure Iraq, a place the size of France, you know, with less people than you've got in Kosovo or whatever, yeah. you know. So that whole thing changes at that time, but we, the Brits, are coming out of, that, uh, of Iraq because we can't sustain two medium-scale warfighting operations. And, um, you know, that's, that's a, another story, in inverted commas. But it takes us into Afghanistan and, and your own experiences in Afghanistan. So if you think again of this spectrum, this ability to apply the principles in a practical way, in depending on the theatre you're in and what it is you're trying to do, is it high-intensity warfighting? Is it state-on-state? State? Is it humanitarian? Is it counterinsurgency? Is it peacekeeping? Is it peace support? Is it peace enforcement? It means you have to have a military environment where people understand warfare and understand the nuances. Um, and that's not easy. I have to say, you know, my experience with the British Army is the British soldiers, I suspect like the Australian soldiers, are pretty good at this. But they need leaders who understand it and you don't lead them down the wrong bloody path. Mm. Um, and that's it, why this sort of stuff is so important. It, it would seem to me that as we look back over a lot of these campaigns um, and, and what you've spoken about, be it the early days in Bosnia, be it um, after the fall of Saddam Hussein, of all the principles, it's the first principle, which is selection and maintenance of the, the aim, aim which seems to have been forgotten. That's certainly true. But, you know, unity of effort... I mean, all the principles are important, but you're right. You know, what, what is, again, in terms of doctrine, we talk about ends, ways and means, what was the intended end state for Iraq? As far as 
people like Rumsfeld were concerned, Iraq was simply a step in a process of moving on. And what Iraq was going to look like, I don't think they'd ever thought. I mean, there were, there were, there were stated end states, you know, country at peace with its neighbours and I mean, democracy. I mean, classic, you know, a democracy. What do we mean by democracy? Now, in my terms, democracy, in a country that's got proper democracy, it means you have an election, the party that is elected with a majority is the ruling party, but it rules on behalf of all the people, even those people that did not vote for it. Now, clearly, it introduces the policies it was elected on and so on, but, you know, the British Prime Minister, the Australian Prime Minister, the American President, leaving aside current issues, you know, generally is there to rule on behalf of all the people. When you have elections in places like Iraq, or indeed many places in Africa, the ruling party is not interested in all the people. Yeah. They're interested in the people who voted for them, and interested in doing, you know, getting retribution for, for what's happened in the past. So when Saddam's gone, all sorts of internecine issues are going on here, and the elected parties are interested in anybody else other than their tribe or their families or whatever. And that's for me, is the, is the real distinction between democracy. So when we talk about democracy in the Middle East, for example, anybody who thinks you're going to have the sort of democracy we understand in less than about three generations is just kidding themselves. And it ain't going to happen. We sometimes forget that both US democracy and British democracy Together. has evolved over hundreds of years Quite. and both, in, both included a very bloody civil war. Exactly. Exactly that. And, and the Westphalian sovereign state, which we talked about previously, the Treaty of Westphalia, you know, is the beginning of that journey. Uh, but, you know, over, over a long hundreds of years, um, it, you're absolutely right. So, yeah, why, do, why are we surprised? And, you know, going back to this business about uh, how long do you stay, Afghanistan's a good example. It took a long time for the British government, under David Richards, the chief of defence staff at the time, to David convince the government, we are at war. And this is a decades-long process, and you're going to have to, you know, you're going to have to endure it and put the, put the, sustain the operations and so on. I mean, bottom line was British government wasn't interested, and um, you know, I, could, I don't want to be rude about individual people, but collectively, we got out long before the place has settled. And again, you know, anybody who thinks Afghanistan is going to be sorted out anytime soon is just kidding themselves. Mm. And the, the result is, of course, in lots of brave young men are doing the stuff that the guys do, uh, guys and girls do. And, you know, I get quite irritated, if, if I'm honest, about some of the aspects of this. So as you reflect over um, what has been a lifetime of service and, and, and both practitioner and st studying the profession of arms, and indeed teaching it at, yeah, at, yeah, at yeah. Staff College, um, when you look forward, what do you believe that uh, military such as the Australian Army, the, the British Army, where do we need to invest intellectually to be able to um, foresee the challenges of the futures or at least be able to adapt far more quickly than we have in the past? Yeah. Well, it, it, it's not easy, of course. Um, and it's easy to look back and be, you know, be condemnatory and make sweeping generalisations. Um, you know, we, as we, the UK, prior to 1982, decided to cut the Navy in half within months. You know, the Argentinians had invaded the peace dividend we talked about earlier on. So these decisions are not easy. I think in the current climate, some of this is, is, is actually relatively obvious. If people talk about hybrid warfare. I don't think that's new in one sense because things have always been changing over time. But obviously, cyber, electronic warfare, this ability to outthink and outmaneuver people in different ways is, is clearly important. And 
you know, the idea, I mean, Russia are using all sorts of, experimenting in many ways in places like Ukraine, using cyber attacks against infrastructure and, and so on. And, you know, cyber warfare is a key part of this. And there are people talking about, you know, should, should cyber be part of the WMD equation here? So I, I don't think there's any doubt that, you know, understanding hybrid warfare better, understanding what cyber potentially looks like, how you counter it and so on. Um, and um, the use of special forces and, and the use of the, the way the Soviet... So if you look at the Baltic states, for example, the so I don't think the Soviet, the Russians have had to invade Europe, but, you know, they've got the Baltic states, got a large Russian population. How are they using that Russian population to undermine the Baltics, to, to create the atmospherics that enable them maybe to do something about, about the Baltics? Um, has state-on-state -state warfare gone? I don't believe so, actually. I think in terms of the ability to cover that spectrum with understanding what it, all the different parts of it mean and the capabilities you need to fight them. So yes, of course, cyber's key and, and, and the systems that you need in terms of counterinsurgency and so forth are different sorts of systems. Um, but for me, the decision of the British Navy, Royal Navy, under a, a chief of the naval staff who I knew very well, made the decision about the new carriers of course, there's an argument to say that they're very vulnerable, etc., etc., etc. But those carriers have a capability which includes deterrence. It includes sovereign space floating around the place. It includes an ability to help with humanitarian operations and provide offshore command and control, all sorts of stuff. So I'm a great fan of the carriers. What I'm not a great fan of is having two carriers and only having a dozen frigates and destroyers to protect them. Uh, you've got to be prepared to put the resources in at that end of the spectrum as well and the ability to move up, you know, move up and down it. So I don't think state-on-state state, state, state warfare is gone. Do I think anybody's about to invade Europe? No, I don't. But from an Australian perspective, you know, what, the, what the Chinese have been getting up to in the South China Sea is, I think, pretty worrying. And the idea that, I mean, we're still sailing, we, we the UK put HMS Albion through fairly recently to you know, just make the point about international freedom of the sea and so on. But that, you know, those, those sort of places, accidentally sparking off something that could grow pretty quickly. Yeah, I think we need to take that seriously. Um, you know, is anybody going to invade Australia? I don't think so in the current climate. But, uh, you know, having the understanding of what you need to deter that, how you need to engage with the various uh, options, you know, all the various things that are going on. So how do you preempt, you know, serious losses early on and so forth? How do you win the first battle? which is what, again, what a power doctrine was to yeah. win the first battle. In the current context, with the current thinking and so forth, it's clearly not easy. But having the conversations, having the think tanks that think about this stuff, that's what I regret. If you look back in the 70s and 80s, we had serious think tanks who were producing serious papers, having serious conversations about what deterrence looks like, what capabilities you need, the whole business about the balance between conventional and so forth I was touching on earlier on. That's the conversation we need to be having. And then we decide what those capabilities should look like, and then we have to resource them. Uh, General Tim, thank you very much for speaking to us here at The Cove, the home of the Australian profession of arms. A fascinating talk, and we thank you for your time.